Strong start there, everybody. I have just managed to play the end credits. So let's try that one again. Let's see what we get this time. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. There we go. Got the right one in the end. Terribly sorry about that. Um, good evening, everybody, and welcome back, hopefully, or welcome for the first time to The Twilight Show here on a Thursday with me, Henry Sonson. Um, hopefully got a fantastic show for you this evening with a very special guest who's going to be elucidating you in a way far greater than I have possibly achieved over the past few weeks. We're going to be welcoming Bradley Bush. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Excellent. Okay. Good evening, everybody, and welcome. Uh, another edition of The Twilight Show here with me, Henry Saunson, on Teachers Talk Radio, and I'm very, very excited this evening to welcome to the studio, um, I say the studio, welcome to the uh, the virtual radio world we inhabit, the fantastic Bradley Bush, and I'll be bringing him in later on. Um, once we've gone through some of our basics. Our focus for this evening uh, is the use of the science of learning, principles of cognitive science and psychology and their importance to teachers, in particular teacher training and in particular the mentors that look after the teacher trainees. So I'm going to start as ever with a quotation. Opening one today is from the fantastic work of Paolo Freire. He says that critical reflection on practice is a requirement of the relationship between theory and practice. Otherwise, theory becomes simply blah, 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 and practice pure activism. And I really rather like that as a reminder to us of the need to ensure that anything that we read, anything that we, we pick up, anything that we might magpie or see or observe or determine looks good, must be enacted after discussion, after dialogue, after consideration and after critical reflection. And in particular, knowing why we are doing what we are doing and ensuring that the reasons behind our decision making pedagogically the decisions uh, yeah the reasons behind our decision making instructionally behaviorally all of these things um have a firm grounding in what it is that we want to achieve okay so that's where we're going to be focused today and uh, i'll be bringing bradley in soon um just a few questions for you there in the chat so first of all i've asked how much do trainee teachers need to know about cognitive science and psychology? Secondly, how much do mentors need to know about cognitive science and psychology? And thirdly, do we need to align mentor thinking and language with the language of the ITE core training and curriculum offer? Okay, so there's just a few questions if you're uh, going to pop some answers in for me there. be really interesting to hear from you be really interesting to get your point of view, hopefully from an informed perspective with regards to either your own experiences of cognitive science and the principles thereof, or indeed your work perhaps as a mentor, school leader or induction tutor. Okay, so that's where we're going to be focused this evening. And we are now going to hopefully introduce 
um, Bradley Bush, who I think um, is endeavouring to uh, enter his way into the studio using an interesting pseudonym. Uh, and uh, Bradley, if you want to try and call in again, we should be able, hopefully, to pick you up. Um, we'll just wait for a moment or two to see if that one comes through. While we do, um, one thing this week, I don't know if... Uh, here we go. Let's see if this works. So I have sent my invite. Evening, Henry. How are you doing? Good evening, Bradley. I am very, very well. How are you? Relieved that I made the technology work uh, relatively effortlessly. <laughs> I was impressed. This this sort of name cropped up and I thought, oh, that looks interesting. Now, uh, who's that? Yeah, and then the, the, all of a sudden... So definitely not my cheesing. Uh, the, uh, the, <laughs> the iPhone gods have decided. I think that one at random. Well, I like it. I, I, I think as pseudonyms go, um, swimming ash is, uh, is obviously something you know you could you could run with if you're ever going to publish some slightly salacious memoirs under an assumed name. You could give that a bit of a go, couldn't you? How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, yeah, excited and yeah, chuffed to be be on your show. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm chuffed to bits and back again for you to actually uh, take the time to spend some time chatting. I'm really looking forward to it, Bradley. And thank you so much. I know oh, you're thanks. a busy man. Yeah. And, um, I, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do uh, with with our show here on a Thursday evening is to raise a bit of the profile of initial teacher education, but also to think about the way in which that we're incorporating science of learning and principles of psychology and um, cognition into teaching practice. Um, and so we'll, we'll sort of wander off down a few little avenues and alleyways with regards to that, if that's OK. But I think what would be really great, Bradley, for those that are either tuning in now or are going to tune in later who might not be familiar with your work, um, uh, try and sort of not necessarily going for a sales pitch here. But if you just tell us a little <laughs> bit about who you are and what you do and also, Bradley, what's brought you into education, because, of course, that wasn't your first port of call. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. So um, I guess uh, by trade, I'm a I'm a psychologist. Um, I started initially working in sport. Uh, wanted to see if I could help footballers kick a football better by improving how they think. Um, still do a bit of work um, with a few Premier League players and did some work with Team GB over the last two Olympic and Paralympic cycles. And although I kind of still love the stuff in sport. Um, I kind of realised that, yeah, helping millionaires kick a football round is fun, but ultimately not the most fulfilling. Uh, and all the stuff that I was getting interested in was around all the research that was coming out of mainly ed, ed psych and cognitive uh, psychology and, and wasn't really from sports. So um, along with my co-author um, of a book that we did, uh, my colleague Edward Watson, um, you know, I joined in a drive and we now do... Uh, a lot of student workshops around helping students think better, uh, be it for exams or studying um, or leadership and, and do a lot of staff CPD, mainly around teaching and learning and cognitive science. Um, so we kind of go up and down the country delivering insets and CPDs. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, lovely. And I mean, uh, you, you, you call upon the, the book of Science of Learning, there's 77 studies that every teacher needs to know. Um, and 99, I believe now, isn't it, with the latest iteration? Yeah, I mean, what was frustrating is, so we published the first one, the 77 studies, and literally the day after, uh, I read the most beautiful study on how to design the perfect multiple choice test, which was seemed like really relevant when everyone's talking about retrieval practice. And I was kind of just kicking myself that we didn't include that. And it's like all these things, you know, as soon as you 
publish or click send, even on a tweet, you kind of wish you'd have said something different. Uh, yeah. And so it only took about two years for me to bully uh, yeah, my colleague Edward to do another one. <laughs> but I think uh, that's it now. 99, 99 and now is, uh, is us now. Yep. And that's, that's fair. I mean, why not? You know, 99 not out is a decent, decent test average. So, uh, yeah, I, think I mean, it, yeah, it, it worked for Don Bradman. So I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> nice, nicely done. That's the second show in a row. We've had cricket references. We're doing quite well. <laughs> um, so, I mean, what fascinates me, not, not just about the book itself, Bradley, and about uh, sort of your work in general, but the field in which you work. And um, I think possibly the reason why we sort of know each other a little bit is this, this world of cognitive science and psychology that um, is sort of sitting beneath a significant amount of, and I'll avoid the word progress, but a significant amount of thinking in and around education. And I mean, you, you reference in the, the first iteration, you've got 77 separate studies, each one of which um, is the basis of a significant amount of action research or inquiry you know, research done by practitioners in the field of education. Um, in terms of perhaps selecting what you choose to work with how how much do you consider sort of not contextual but almost sort of uh what do i mean sort of chronological reference uh, relevance almost like how how recent or not recent does something need to be to be introduced into people's thinking around education and, te and teaching in general do you think yeah uh, it's something we, we wrestle with because one of the requests that we often get is what does the latest research say on X, be it retrieval, spacing, cognitive load. And I've now come to think it's kind of the wrong question. Uh, people actually don't want the latest research. What they really want is the best research. Uh, yeah. And there is an assumption that if it's new, it must be better because it's building on previous knowledge. Mm. Um, and there are some studies, like I read a study last week about if you should give hints on retrieval practice that I hadn't read before, only been fairly recently released, and that kind of shaped how I now view things. But on the flip side, one of my favorite studies that we sometimes refer to on, uh, there's a study on elaborative interrogation, which is yeah. about asking follow-up questions to kind of get them to connect the new information into their long-term schema. Yeah. Uh, and this study, uh, you know, it's over 30 years old, but the concept of elaborative interrogation has been replicated so many times that you can say pretty confidently that this is a good area that's worth us weaving into our practice uh, yeah. so i don't necessarily think you want the latest studies though sometimes that is part of it it's about working out what do we think is going to give us the most reliable or the biggest impact and i think that's probably a healthier way of approaching it as opposed to just new uh, yeah. because i think it's just quite easy to dismiss some of the existing old research think with the assumption that it's outdated yeah I think it's interesting you mentioned elaborative inquiry there. I mean, in terms of elaboration, elaboration theory is, you know, Regaluth is, is writing his elaboration theories and ideas, um, you know, I think sort of uh, late 70s, early 80s, really. I think a lot of the, uh, the material he's doing there, we go back, you know, the, the seminal one, the totem to which many a, a newbie to education research bows is, of course, Rosenshine's work. But the principles of 2012 are the formation of work that began in the late 60s. And right. I... I yeah, no, I was, I was, I was going to say, sorry to interrupt, but like, this is exactly it. So sometimes people get frustrated with some of the older research saying this is nothing new. Hmm. Uh, and I think the whole point is that's brilliant that it's nothing new in some regards. It's reaffirming what some really clever people over the years have considered and reflected on to be what does a good practice look like? Yeah. Uh, because the problem with always going just for brand new 
is, you know, in psychology, there's quite famously a replication crisis where a lot of studies a year or two later don't replicate and people have rushed to embrace them. So, yeah, uh, like the elaboration studies from the 80s are, are some of my favourite. Yeah. And I, th- I mean, and I think that what I really like, and I think what I'm very lucky to be able to do in my role, sort of working in and around the, the, the initial teacher education, is it, there's a constant set of new eyes on existing high quality ideas aren't they? I mean, I, I often draw people back. In fact, I, I probably, I'm sure any trainee who sits in a session that I do or anyone that has to sit through any sort of CPD that I deliver has got a checklist of people I'll talk about. And, I, <laughs> I, and they, can do, they can shout house at the end or they get their corners and they do their bingo line. And I, I always draw people's attention back to Al Sabel's work around the fact that the, the best way to teach someone is to determine what he knows and then adjust accordingly. Um, and that's 1968. And, and, you know, I wasn't around in 1968, but that can still form the basis of, you know, this simple act of establishing existing prior knowledge, activating it appropriately and then building on that. And, and that's brilliant because when, when you say it out loud, that kind of sounds like so obvious. Like you yeah. kind of just assume that must be such common sense. Like, of course, we have to check what people know to then further develop that knowledge. But until you actually, until someone tells it to you, until you read the research... It's not common sense. Uh, and that's why, yeah, I think that stuff's just so powerful. Yeah. I know um, a colleague of mine, in fact, um, Deb Butler, who was on last week, actually, she, uh, when we first started working together, trying to develop sort of an evidence-informed approach to professional development in the school we were in at the time, um, she often sort of capped sessions with a simple indication that um, evidence or research helps turn your gut instincts into best bets. Right. So what you that sort of manifestation of what seems like relatively common sense with a foundational knowledge, actually, you know, high quality, robust research evidence that's that's strong and there's multiple iterations of the same sort of idea and it continues to be successful, simply confirm your your innate, I suppose, and slightly unconscious bias towards what actually works. Well, I mean, that's that's means the beauty of this stuff is half the research I read. I find really reassuring because it confirms and some nice confirmation bias of, yeah, I was on the right track and thinking this sort of approach anyway. But then you read some of the stuff that you go, I hadn't considered it before. And there's this sort of light bulb moment that it just makes sense once you read it. And I think that's some of the beauty of some of this research is, as well as telling us what to do, it can help us save time on not doing the things that are really time heavy, but don't lead to much impact. So it's beautiful how sometimes it confirms our biases and other times it really helps challenge it as well. Yeah, I think that's the important thing. And you sort of, I don't know if you heard my, my Freire quote at the start about critical reflection as a requirement between the relationship of theory and practice, because theory on its own is simply words and practice on its own is just activism without concept. You know, there's no real sort of um, basis for what you do. I know in your um, in your, your introduction to the first iteration of the book, you quote Andrew Lang, the, the poet. Yeah, uh, I love that. Um, yeah, some individuals use statistics as a drunk man uses lampposts for support rather than illumination. I, and, and I really do think that's uh, a fantastic way of sort of taking on board the, the basic evidence of research, the basic paper, and then thinking about what that means and why that means. And I think for me, that's really important. I mean, what what makes you, what what about a piece of research makes you think, yes, I'm going to try and contextualise this a little more. Is there a, a sort of checklist you have or is it just a, a feeling, a hunch, an idea? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I guess I'm not the most methodical in that way. Uh, I find the interesting thing, I guess, like the more you read, the more you can see how individual papers might piece together. Um, and that can be overwhelming to start with, I guess, because you're like, well, where do I start? Um, yeah. But I think what I quite like from start, the research papers I like are the ones that are, you can see a clear path from the study into the application. And I think that application will always change depending on context and the subject and you know, your students. But some of the studies where you go, well, that looked like a relatively not time intense and yet had a significant impact. And I can see how I can weave that into my practice. Um, so like to give you an example, there was one study that I, um, I recently read that looked at, it got students to ask themselves three questions before they did their studying. Um, yeah. And I, I can't remember, I think it was something along the lines of what resources do I have available to me? Um, what do I need to do first? And, and, and how would this help me? Or something along those lines. Uh, yeah. And they found by asking those questions, students then thought harder about their revision and did their, chose their study strategy more thoroughly and I, I made a significant impact in their overall grades. Uh, and I love something like that because I can just, I can do those three questions. Like the, 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 that, that path from research to application isn't too muddied. Where some of the research, I think, they are really valuable where they illustrate a concept, but don't necessarily need to a strategy. That's where it can be a bit more. It, it, can, it can be a bit trickier to translate. Yeah, I mean, what do you? Um, I find certainly. Um, I say I'm, I'm no psychologist at all. I am a, a person who has found. A, a sort of a fascination with with cognitive science and its principles um but i think sort of my main interest is in their application in a more sort of physical manifestation in, in a classroom setting and also in an instructive way for for those entering the profession but one thing i do find and this might be because i i have quite a narrow frame of reference um is that a significant amount of the educational research that forms the basis for a lot of our discussion in teaching is not of these shores and we're quite heavily reliant on material that is perhaps researched, observed and developed in especially a lot of K-12 and, and sort of um, American education. And then also, uh, I mean, I draw quite a lot on, you know, let's say someone looks at the work of John Hattie. Well, then we're, we're, we're going down under. And I just wonder if you feel that there's a um, is there a lack of pertinent educational research emerging from this country? Or is it that we haven't found it yet? Or is it that it's just something that we've never really focused on? Um, well, I mean, I guess there's two things that are interesting in that. The first is I have been surprised, but I've found consistently speaking to teachers in America, America is years behind England in terms of embracing cognitive science and uh, teaching and learning research, which is really counterintuitive because, hmm. as you say, a lot of this research emanates from there. Uh, so there's a, the disconnect in America uh, is huge between the widespread adoption of cognitive science where, uh, practice in terms of where the research is. Um, there are, I've read some brilliant studies from people in, in the UK and in England. Uh, I think going forward, we'll only see that more because I think you only have to go back 10 or 15 years ago where the type of research that was being discussed in education circles was quite different to mm. what it is now. So I think it's fair to say, and please correct me if I'm wrong from your perspective, but like I never as understood as a psychologist sort of outside of education to start with, 
why was the only psychology that anyone was ever talking about on initial teacher training was mainly like Piaget and Vygotsky. Yeah. Uh, and that's not to say that's not, they don't have their place, but where, where was all the other stuff? Whereas because we're seeing so much more of this other stuff now, I wouldn't be surprised going forward if there's a real acceleration within England and, and the UK on researchers producing this stuff. But even though, that, and the second point I guess I'd make is even though there's difference, like you mentioned like Hattie in Australia or the States, like I always think people are way more similar than they are different. Like yeah. how learning happens, like the context is obviously different, uh, but essentially how learning happens is going to be really, really consistent across most cultures uh, because the brain is the brain and there are individual differences, but over large numbers that averages out and that everyone has a working memory limitation. Yeah. Uh, and everyone benefits from spacing as opposed to just doing it in one big session. Uh, now we can talk about the application might vary how it might be different in Australia or in America or even in maths versus French as a yeah. subject, but the concepts are pretty universal. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm generally, I'm not concerned. In fact, I actually think it's brilliant that you've got all these smart brains all over the world kind of working on the same sort of problems. Yeah. So, I mean, and I, I agree. I mean, uh, much of uh, the material that I like to sort of read and, and, and go through and, and synthesize and use in my practice um, is emerging from other, other cultures. But I think all that does is open our eyes to the similarities, perhaps, that we share. And also, I think, remind us of the need for that for that nuance and cultural yeah. difference in in application. I mean, I was talking to uh, to someone uh, earlier today, in fact, actually, about um, we, we have these principles, uh, underlying principles behind cognitive science, perhaps. I mean, it, particularly in, in the um, initial teacher training core content framework. And um, there's certain uh, I've referenced before certain research. Um, done by Bath Spa and the Wellcome Trust about how yeah. certain principles can be viewed through a cognitive lens. And um, it makes me think or it makes me question, can a, a teacher who let, let's sort of create a scenario of a teacher who's been teaching for four or five years, they're moving towards a, a state of comfortable competency. Um, they've passed through Fur Furlong and Maynard's five stages of terror. <laughs> and they're now all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're moving towards a competency and they, they hear of, of a cognitive principle that they weren't aware of so let's say that they're introduced to um i'll pick um interleaving because i know you've been working on it recently can that teacher simply then read about interleaving and their next lesson try and just interleave what's this what's the gap what's the what's the necessary step between the research paper and the application direct into the classroom is there a necessary step yeah, I mean, it's essentially, it's, it's the beauty of essentially like the Dunning-Kruger effect in, in action, yeah. because we all, all of us, uh, myself especially, when we first read a research paper and you have this light bulb moment, you think, I'll just go do that. Uh, yeah. But I think that's a really, I mean, you do it very confidently because you think you've, read, you've got the answer. But I think that's actually a brilliant thing because I'm now convinced the only way this stuff works is through real world trial and error. And so you have to start, like you don't need permission uh, to be an expert to start at this stuff. And I think where I'm at now is I think because research has to has to inform teacher judgment, it, like, it'll never replace it. Uh, so you can't read a study and then just go, I'll just do this thing and then that, that'll be the right thing for my class. But I think it can absolutely help start informing those decisions. And the only way to improve those decisions is 
through painful trial and error. And I guess some peer support and mentoring is really helpful for that. Um, but yeah, I think you can just start. Uh, and what's brilliant is you read one paper and you're really kind of confident. Uh, mm. And then actually you read 10 and you're like, oh, I didn't realize now all the, the nuances or I didn't realize what I didn't know before. But again, I just think that's, as a profession, I think that's brilliant because we're engaged in professional dialogue about what works and how learning happens. And even if we don't get that right, uh, you know, all of us are never going to be the finished product and we shouldn't aim, we shouldn't aim to be either. And I think especially that's important in early years um, of someone's career is taking that pressure of what it means to be a good teacher or perfectionism out of it and go, just go try. And you do each year, all we were, all any of us ever do is just do the best we can on that particular year. Um, So I look back at some of the stuff that I used to do and I just think, what was I thinking? But that didn't make me a bad teacher because at the time I was, I was doing it the best that I possibly could. And that's, and and maybe that's enough, uh, you know, for, for our students at that time. Yeah. I think I think you're right in terms of we we just endeavour to be the best version of ourselves we can be, don't we? And if that means that, um, you know, I, I'm with you. I think in terms of especially support around the early years, we in initial teacher education and then early career induction over two years, you've got that perhaps slight safety net of additional time, but right. also you have the opportunity perhaps to to fail a little more readily. I mean, there's um, but the important thing is to create the culture in which that perceived failure is accepted as part of development, isn't it? Well, and that's so, why, um, yeah, that's why graded one-off lesson observations is brilliant that then basically now in for the most part because yeah. it doesn't provide that culture. I mean, what, what, what do you think? You, you speak to more uh, early career teachers than I do. Uh, if it, what would you say if they said, I've read this amazing interleading paper yeah. and it's given me X, Y, and Z, would you say go and try it? Would you say wait and read 10 more papers first or talk to someone else? What would be... Where do you sit on that? I think that's a good question. I mean, I think what I'd probably do is I'd be interested to know first and foremost which paper they've read. Yeah, good, um, good question. Purely because I, I think there's a lot of, there's some great people, yourself included, doing some great work around synthesizing the raft of different contextual research that goes on and then bringing it into a more generic sort of middle ground from which then people can reinterpret it in their own context. I mean, we take... I know there's that quite famous sort of Glazer and Chai paper about novices and experts, but that's grounded in physics problems and chess. Uh, And, you know, that, that, uh, but then we can uh, sort of take that as a, is it a metonym? Is it when you take some, uh, one part as a representative of the whole, you talk about wheels and you mean a car, something like that. Um, But you you sort of have this. You you know, as a host, you're not allowed to ask questions where people don't know the answer. (laughs) well this is why i've not quite got the hosting thing down pat yet right i think think certainly i would i would encourage them to apply it with purpose so i suppose for me the important thing is that there's a reason um i often sort of drill into to people that um if they'll listen that simply doing something for the sake of being told to do it or the fact that you're doing it is in itself a sort of poor defense because you're simply using compliance as a reasoning. Whereas, um, you know, compliance education is relatively unsound. So I suppose what I would ask them to do is to say, right, this is a great study, you know, and this is a study that has opened the door to many other studies. There's been a significant amount of work around this. There's a, you know, the, the research and the evidence is strong. The, the um, implementation case studies are, you know, multitudinous. There's a lot of proof that this works. 
why are you going to do this? And I think that would be my start point, is asking them to frame a question of basic inquiry as to how is this particular intervention going to benefit this particular group of students and in what specific way? So I think that's the way I'd be looking at it. And I guess what, what the interesting consequence of that is, and I don't actually know the answer, is how would they ever know if it worked or not? Uh, yeah. Because it's really hard, I think, to assess learning uh, and draw a neat causation between the strategy we used and their learning. Like we can do that in experiments where you can control for factors and put it in a very sterile research lab setting. But say that early careers teacher used it, right, I'm going to do interleaving more. Uh, yeah. And their class made more progress. Uh, it's really hard to know if it was that particular strand of your teaching that caused that progress because you can't do a randomized control trial with your class. Like your class is your class. Uh, yeah. So that's, I think, really hard at the start of your career when it comes to stuff like cognitive sciences. Yeah. How do you figure out if it actually works? Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, it's just really hard to assess learning yeah. relating to one off interventions. Yeah, uh, I think maybe that's where perhaps um, secondary teachers have a slightly easier way in with, as you say, the sort of action research approach, because you could argue that if they're trying a particular strategy with one particular group of students, all their other classes that they don't do that with become their control groups. Right. And so they, they sort of compare perhaps, you know, they've got two groups of year nine and they do a, they, they adopt a, a strategy of you know, retrieval or they use an elaborative planning technique or they yeah, elaborative interrogation, let's say, as a questioning process in one group and they don't do it with the other and they can see that progress is being made. I suppose then the natural teacher guilt comes in. They think, well, actually, I should have been doing that with the other guys as well. Exactly. Six weeks ago. Yeah, and that's really, <laughs> and, and, and I think it's amazing how much of someone's, I think, early career is wrapped around guilt. Yeah. Uh, because everyone gets into this, like usually for the right reasons of wanting to help. And then the question is, well, what if I'm not helping as well as I can? And then you can see how that, yeah, that guilt definitely trickles down. Yeah. So, I mean, tell us, uh, tell me a little bit then about you know, sort of what, I, I assume that you continue to, to do what you do because you love it and you learn from it. I mean, is there anything that sort of really opened your eyes? Was there a particular study or a particular concept in in research and development that you thought yes this is this is where we need to go now this is the thing for me yeah well i, I mean i guess uh the first study that we mentioned in the book uh I'm, and i i'm guessing a lot of people are aware of it by now is um it was that study by Dunlosky that kind of yeah. compared lo lots of like learning strategies uh and uh, i like that so because i think it's kind of like a gateway drug like you know, you know what I mean like because it covers such a broad area of different strategies it then goes I now want to read more about each of these strategies and then read those research so it's kind of a yeah. great soft intro um, yeah. but the other reason I quite liked it is uh, so I used to teach in a college um, and whenever I got observed I always felt I was just putting on a performance uh, for the observer but I never really knew why I was doing what I was doing or what yeah. made good learning uh, and then you look at this study and it kind of goes Best bets, you know, for your time, this will probably make more impact, stuff like retrieval and spacing. And then you kind of go, well, I'll start to do more of those things then. Uh, yeah. And it's kind of not complicated in, in, in some respects. Uh, so I think that one as a, as a memory um, study, like a learning um, techniques, that one I kind of really loved. Um, almost, I'll tell you the other thing that I kind of, one of the areas I really like, um, 
was almost the absence of some research. So yep. when we were when we were researching the book, I was trying to find some studies around. Like I always got told at the start, and I don't know if you ever heard it. That like this kind of concept that you learn more from someone that you like. Like if right. if, 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 if if they like you, they'll learn more from you. Uh, and I basically couldn't find any studies that supported this. Uh, and like when you start to dig into some of the research, you kind of then realise it's not saying the teacher-student relationship doesn't matter. It absolutely does matter, but it's not based on popularity and likability. It's more often based around trust, reliability, high expectations. Uh, and that for me was almost a relief because then like, I could direct my time and energy better. It wasn't about a popularity contest. It was about how do I actually be the best teacher um, yeah. or instructor for them? And yeah, I think that that was quite a uh, like quite an eye opener. That like <laughs> research can tell you what might work, but like the absence of research might also give you an indication of what's a bit of a myth almost. Yeah, I suppose the the, old, the phrase was is it um, absence of evidence is not the same as evidence of absence. Yeah, no, that's true, and that's that's always something to kind of consider. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, I spent ages trying to make show that my students have, like engaged, but like not necessarily in the right way. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think some of the research just kind of helped point me into a better direction. Like my favorite example that I always give, I spent hours once making the most amazing PowerPoint on <laughs> around who wants to be a millionaire. Yep. So I had all the sound effects, all the animations you could possibly think of. And the students loved it and it got observed as a great lesson and all that kind of jazz. But you look back and you go, all oh, the students told me, like, they really enjoyed playing Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, but they couldn't remember any of the questions and answers, yeah. which was the point. And if I'd have thought about that, and now, you know, once I read more stuff, I'll, you know, actually, because I, I need to spend more time actually doing the retrieving, mm. uh, that would have saved me about three three evenings uh, that one week <laughs> where, where I was just laboring over this PowerPoint. So, like, it, it can be quite liberating, I think, uh, once you kind of get into the research stuff side of things. Yeah. It's it's interesting. You sort of um, you've answered one question that I had for you, but you're going to lead me into another. I mean, one question I was going to ask was: Are there any areas that you think are under researched? And I might come back to that because we've just sort of talked a little bit there. But what you've just that that anecdote that you've just uh, given, I think, is a really pertinent one in terms of one of the questions that I w was considering, and one of the reasons why, why why we've connected and worked together a little bit is because um, that observer the, who came along and watched your Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was clearly looking at the engagement levels of the students and, and perhaps taking engagement as a proxy for, for successful teaching or, or for, for good learning, when in reality, as you've alluded to, they remembered the square root of what's it when it came to actually okay. retrieving that information later down the line. So would this then perhaps be a prime argument for an awareness of all who are involved in teacher development, and I don't mean just initial teacher training, but, you know, we continually get better throughout our careers. So anyone who's involved in a, uh, a mentor or coaching capacity or a leadership of continual professional development programs, is it important that they have a firm grounding of the sort of generally accepted cognitive principles that underpin effective teaching before they begin to make decisions about how people should or should not be teaching material? Ah. Uh hundred percent like at its most basic and fundamental like everyone in education is in the business of learning mm. and to not have a evidence-based understanding around how learning and how memory and how uh, skill development skill development work uh is it's just bonkers when you think when you say it out loud uh and i honestly think if you and if you ask people in 10 years time 
like because I think it's now becoming so so accepted now. I think they were struggling to believe that this stuff wasn't on the syllabus um, to the extent it is uh, previously. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I I think I understand like it's hard to see learning, and so therefore it's hard to then kind of see what counts as good teaching without context of what's happened previously. Um, yeah. And so, but I think now that everyone's becoming more aware. Uh, I actually think there's probably never been a better time in terms of improving knowledge mm. to go through to be like an early careers teacher because all this stuff is now kind of just seen as kind of common sense because it's so widely discussed. But that it just wasn't the case, was it? No, it wasn't. I think, and, and it was perhaps the uh, the domain of of the more academic based routes into teaching. I mean, I certainly, you know, I did uh, I did a PGCE route 15 years ago, and I, I don't really recall any of this particular. Um, you know, sort of theoretical aspect apart from what I found myself. And then in, in my sort of life as an NQT and then, a, you know, an RQT and, a, and an RESPECT and all of the other ETs and whatever have you, um, you know, such things as um, brain gym and De Bono's thinking hats and uh, learning to learn programs and such things were, were beginning to manifest. And I think they were manifested with all good intention. But of course, because their implementation was under-researched and the impact not truly known, now we look back at them as sort of archaic mockery, don't we? We think, oh, I remember Brain Jim. How ridiculous. But actually, I was going to say, no, no one would have introduced that whole scale into an educational system without thinking it might work. And so perhaps that's uh, yeah. an example of institutional trial and error, which maybe, again, we perhaps need to accommodate more of. I don't know. Which begs the obvious question, if we are going to be somewhere on the cynical versus sceptical spectrum, <laughs> uh, like every generation like looks back at the fashion or the music choice or haircuts of their, of their parents and, and mocks them to some extent. Uh, it does beg the question of what in 10 or 15 years time are we going to look back on that we're doing now and ask the same sort of questions. So are people going to look back on and go, it wasn't mad that people just rushed into retrieval practice and interleaving or spacing like i don't think they will be saying that but there'll definitely be some aspects of what we're currently doing that we are doing under the name of evidence or research uh that subsequent research is going to suggest wasn't good bets or good use of our time uh yeah. so although i'm about as big a fan as you can get of teachers reading research of cognitive science and the opportunities it offers for our practice uh we, we, we do have to kind of be cautious because the people doing De Bono's hats and Bloom's taxonomy and to more extent brain gym and learning styles, everyone was doing it with the best intentions and yeah. it's the same intentions we have now. Uh, so it's, it's been interesting to see how do we learn from those mistakes and, and do better with this new yeah. wave of enthusiasm for cognitive science. Definitely. And I think that intro, you used the phrase new wave there because I, I sort of, one particular sort of triumvirate, a trinity perhaps, or a quotation that I've always enjoyed. I like things in threes. Right, um, go on. I, I've always liked, and I and often quote Robin Alexander when he talks about educational decisions that need to have a, um, uh, a pedagogical principle, a research, an evidence base and an educational aim. I think that's important. Yeah. But then there's um, Pollard, Andrew Pollard, talking about the art, craft and science of teaching. Um, and so back in, uh, I found a quotation here, which I'm um, sort of just, I know it's, it's not great radio to read something out, but I'm going to. Um, so Pollard sort of 12 years ago or so saying that pedagogy is the practice of teaching framed and informed by a shared and structured body of knowledge 
This knowledge comprises experience, evidence, understanding moral purpose and shared transparent values. And he talks about how teachers are entitled to be treated as professionals, should be willing and able to scrutinise and evaluate their own and others' practice in the light of relevant theories, values and evidence, and therefore should be able to make professional judgments which go beyond pragmatic constraint and ideological concern and which can be explained and defended. And there, you see, we've got, got the word evidence coming into play there. We've got... Um, this idea that that you know if you if you're not basing your ideas on some form of evidence what are you basing them on so i suppose teachers have always naturally used some form of evidence but they perhaps just never called it evidence and then you know it's just been oh instinct or or you know that's a response to what that student did and and your own experiences become your own evidence base as well don't they so perhaps it's that alignment of the the published research and material alongside your own ever developing experiential sort of raft and craft of strategies that you're 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 constantly creating and then curating throughout your career. Yeah, and for me, uh, it might sound kind of counterintuitive given that I wrote a book about research and science and learning. <laughs> uh, I would hope that uh, we don't dismiss that that evidence you discussed or that personal experience is really valuable and it'd be a real mistake if there were, if the if somehow it was only about the research and it became a tick box exercise because yeah. the research says and where i see this stuff work brilliantly is when you talk to these uh different subject specific teachers so hearing a music teacher learn about interleaving and get excited about how it would apply in his lessons uh, is, also, is sometimes very different to how I've heard a history teacher say how they're doing theirs. And yet, but both of them are based on this research, but they're applying it from their rich subject knowledge and their years in the profession. And that's where I think it's, it works best. Yeah. Uh, you, you've actually, uh, saying that, uh, you remind me, I know you like a quote. Uh, <laughs> so I've, I've got one for you, for you that I think uh, kind of reflects this kind of side nicely. Uh, it's from uh, William James, who's basically like the granddaddy of modern psychology. Um, right. And the reason I, it's literally the only quote I know because um, <laughs> my wife, who's a psychologist, she actually has it up in our kitchen. Uh, oh, wow. This, this quote. Uh, so here, here you go. This is it for you. Um, okay. I think this is kind of chimes with what you were discussing. Uh, he said, psychology is a science and teaching is an art. And sciences never generate arts directly out of themselves. An intermediary inventive mind must do the application by using its originality, which is kind of what we're saying. So, so like the research is the psychology, but the application is the art of it. And that has to have that informed by your own experience because yeah. I can't teach your lesson for you because I don't know your subject, I don't know your students, and I don't have your yeah. experience about what works, but I can tell you guidelines from psychology. Yeah. Uh, and that's I where I hope that. This, this stuff, it's like the two have to meet. Yes. And I think I, I, your use of the word guidelines there, I think, is really important, isn't it? Because you're not saying you must do this exactly like this, otherwise it won't work. It's a case of saying, you know, that there are generic principles and, and, and mutually understood concepts that then, as you see, as say, need that domain specific input. And that um, sort of realisation in those in those different physical environments. I mean, one thing I'm sort of quite focused on at the moment with, with my guys is developing not just their content knowledge and their subject, but their pedagogical content knowledge. Right. 
uh, the, the PCK that that Shulman and, and various others then sort of sort of built on the, the fact that you could, it's that that I think he calls it a special amalgam of pedagogy and knowledge that allows you to teach your material in the best way to for that material to be taught. And so that means, you know, that's the unique domain of the pedagogue is somebody who knows and understands the, their content matter, be it English, history, phonics, um, PE. But then they also understand the relevant pedagogies that will best transmit that content in a way that it will be learned by the students. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And that's, I think, probably the biggest threat to cognitive science um, is if senior leadership, it's their job to help develop the understanding of this cognitive science in their school, but in giving their teachers the autonomy and the flexibility within that to trust them to apply it best to their subject because those teachers know their subject. Uh, yeah. Whereas the second it becomes, I watch you and you only did five minutes of retrieval practice at the start instead of the seven, like that, 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 that's when this stuff is dead, uh, yeah. essentially. Um, and so it I happens, think that, though. Oh, and I, and I understand why. And again, it comes back to what you said earlier about good intentions. It happens because we all want to help best support students and evidence suggests retrieval practice can help students. So therefore, the best way to ensure, I say that kind of in inverted commas, that yeah. that, gets, uh, <laughs> that gets replicated in the classroom is to mandate it um, and for it to become um, teaching by numbers. Uh, yeah. which isn't what any of the research would advocate uh, and it would be wrong for it to be done in the name of research. Uh, mm. What I, th I think is better is explaining to staff the value of some of the computer science principles and then having lots of discussion and heated debate and reflection about what stuff can fit well in their context and what stuff doesn't. Yeah. I agree. And I, th I think you sort of, again, you, you, you segue very nicely into my uh, my next consideration is around, as you say, that dialogue that we, we mentioned earlier with the free air quote and the, uh, the critical reflection can only happen when all of those who are engaged in that act of dialogue have the necessary humilities to throw aside any hierarchical claim to be better than anyone else. But also they have a, an understanding of the not only the principle and its enactment, but also the language surrounding it. And I know certainly, you know, that's what we're trying to sort of do when it comes to working with mentors is to ensure that they may have been doing something that is retrieval practice for 25 years, but they've just never called it retrieval practice. Um, and and so, did, do you see that as a big, uh, a big challenge in the early careers when we're talking about this new understanding of this research that wasn't there 15, 20 years ago? This imbalance then of what an early career teacher has been exposed to versus what a mentor who was exposed to how, from your perspective how, how does that how does that imbalance play that, out and, how, and how, do we, how, how do we address it i guess i mean that that's the real challenge isn't it because yeah. um you know i inherently need to be trusting those people that are working day in day out in their context to know their context really well and to help my trainees acculturate to that context but also they're receiving from me and, and, and all IT, all initial teacher education providers, a, a well-informed and high-quality set of principles that then need exploration within specific contexts. But if those principles have got names that aren't, or they've got bases that aren't fully understood by those that are supporting their implementation, then you have this disconnect, and it's unintentional. Yeah. But uh, I think the important thing, certainly from my perspective, is to ensure that there's that alignment that isn't patronising. Because that's the danger, isn't it? It's very easy to, to human people are people, 
and ad- adult learners. Well, wait, wait, regard- wait. Given that you have a love of quotes, do you reckon that would be the one that you get remembered by? Uh, people are people. People are people. It was a. Yeah, uh, it, that's inspired. Uh, it, it was, wasn't it? Absolutely inspired. I think it was a song by. Um, People are people. Was it Depeche Mode? It might have been. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think, so basically, I've just summed up everything um, I think about teaching in a Depeche Mode quote. No, um, uh, uh, but uh, it's that sort of. I'll try and link it back to ideas of andragogy. I was, I was referring to Malcolm, <laughs> Malcolm Knowles's work of the seventies. I think there in particular. Um, but no, this sort of I, I know from experience, and I think I, I have grown more humble as a, a teacher. Um, and it's not like a hashtag humble brag. I genuinely mean it. I, I think that I've, I'm much more open now to being told stuff by people that know more that I was perhaps five years into my career because I was appalling in CPD sessions at, when I was sort of three or four years into teaching. You'd sit there thinking, well, who's this? What do they know? I, you know, la, 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 I've got marking to do. Um, and there's always a danger, I think, that we unintentionally patronize people of significant experience yeah um and uh, instead of the the you know this hi grandma here's your egg this is how to suck it it's got to be a case of old dogs with new language hasn't it they they know the tricks they just don't know what they're called perhaps some are able to be fully finger on the pulse and some just don't have the time or the inclination to continually update their glossary of teaching but they've got the requisite skill set that means they can show what it looks like. Yeah, I, 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 I completely agree. Uh, I'm always struck by, whenever I go to schools, how much wealth of knowledge is sitting in that room. Mm. Uh, and it's an interesting idea of how you best tap into that Yeah. Whilst, whilst still trying to improve it. Yeah. And so how do we tap into I mean, what have you found from your, your delivery? Um, yeah. you, you, you go into a significant number of settings, diverse... Um, uh, in terms of demographic, um, advantage, disadvantage, age, you're, you're working with students to, to, you know, enhance revision strategies, you're working with their teachers to help them and develop them. What do you find is the sort of most effective approach um, yeah. in terms of encouraging people to to reflect and to look at, you know, look at themselves with fresh eyes? Well, I, I think fundamentally, most people want to get better and, en- and actually enjoy getting better. Uh, what they don't like, as you kind of alluded to, is being told what they've been doing is wrong. Yeah. Um, and so our approach, for example, is we might highlight a few studies uh, and that, as I kind of said, like gives a bit of a guideline. Uh, but then I think you have to bake into CPD is time to discuss and reflect. So when I started rather egotistically, I assumed that the value was I've read these studies you've got me here for the day. So let me spend most of that day telling you my knowledge. And therefore you'll leave there with some of the same knowledge that I have. And that's what you paid for. Whereas actually now I think I try and do less content, but give more time to reflect and for staff to discuss and debate because most people, when they get, when they talk about teaching and how to do it well, they do get excited and they do want to get better. Um, And I think you have to tap into that. You have to give them that autonomy uh, you have to get them to reflect as opposed to just more and more content. Uh, I'm trying to work out, and I figure there must be a fancy name for this, some sort of theory that I haven't found out yet. But what I've decided is, I think new when you're introducing a new concept or your, any concept for that matter, I think it has to be similar enough to what people already know or think. So therefore, they don't just completely disregard you because they'll go, but that's not the case in my experience. But it has to be slightly different that 
it offers them some way of progressing or doing something different. So kind of like the Venn diagram almost is 90% similar, 10% new. Uh, yeah. And that 10% therefore isn't threatening. Uh, or, and, it cert- and it certainly isn't judging and it can fit into their existing schema. Uh, whereas if it's, and I don't know if that's the right number, like 10% or whatever, but yeah. uh, if, if it's all the same, people think I've heard it all before. And if it's all new, they go, that doesn't reflect my experience. So you have to kind of get that blend. Uh, and the only way to do that is to tap into their experience as opposed to shovel content down their throats. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's <laughs> nicely put. Um, but I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I sort of there's a, a particular movement sort of coming out of um, University of Bristol. I don't know if you've, you've seen there. They talk about using an engage, build, consolidate approach to in, uh, working with particularly inexperienced and novice teachers right. about how to talk about and think about learning in the classroom. So to reflect on developing classroom practice and supporting experienced and novice teachers through this idea of um, engagement building and consolidating through something as simple as and this is what I think I've really seen the rise of again in recent years that perhaps was just on its way out um, and, and being sort of scoffed and mocked a little um, when I was beginning my teaching as the three-part lesson came in and all of a sudden we had to do a starter and a plenary um, was the idea that actually some such a simple activity like a some sort of topic quiz or as you say a multiple choice question um, uh, a, a very low stakes. I mean, there's the classic Rudiger and Karpik, you know, testing effect. Yeah, isn't there? You know, this this sort of sense that actually, the more people think hard about something, regardless of how simplistic or, or simple it seems, is actually a hugely beneficial learning strategy. Yeah, um, I mean, like that is really, I think, just an awesome study as well, um, because. Yeah, talking about ones that haven't carried good weight, uh, I think that yeah. definitely that, that, that's that's definitely one of them. Yeah. Now I know a, um, a lot of so much of your work and, and much of from your sort of psychological background can come uh, is aligned to specific education. You know, it's studies grounded in the classroom, but also you you have a, a you look a lot, don't you, at the sort of the more the human side, the individual, the the person. And it's not just them and, and a teacher, but the, their own interactions with themselves and the way in which teachers can, or indeed adults or anyone else can, you know, uh, affect their, their buoyancy, their resilience, the, the way they see themselves. I mean, would you, is, is there a particular sort of seminal study or concept that you think it's important that anyone working with students needs to be aware of from a, a socio-emotional perspective as opposed to a cognitive one? Yeah, um... It's, it's, it's interesting you say that because when we actually released the book, one of the criticisms that we had from some quarters was it wasn't just about memory. Uh, yeah. Sometimes learning gets equated with just memory yeah. and we won't do anything that could contribute to the learning process. Um, one of my favorite studies, uh, if anyone's interested in resilience, um, there was a great study uh, by a pair of researchers. And in my mind, I think they're the leading resilience researchers in the country. So they've studied uh, resilience in Olympians, in business, they've done stuff in education. And their study a few years ago uh, was like a good systematic overview. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I took for it, I mean, they give loads of strategies, but one of the things I took for it, they talk about how do we go about developing a resilient environment? Because resilience isn't something that you teach as such. It's more of a thing or something that you help develop. Yeah. Uh, and so one of their suggestions, and I love it because it's so simple and clean, is they say, um, 
if you're environment, they think about it as um, two factors. The first is level of challenge. Yep. So like how high do we set expectations around behavior and attitude and teach the top, believe you can improve, uh, believe you can do better than you did yesterday. So high challenge. And they say that combines with uh, levels of support. Um, you know, how connected do people feel to the group? How do they know who to turn to for emotional support? And what they found is to develop resilience, you absolutely have to have both. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is a really interesting concept because, for example, I look back at my early practice. Uh, I was so supportive. I was so nurturing. I didn't want anyone to be uncomfortable in my, in my, in my lessons. And so as a result, uh, what I was actually subtly doing was actually just lowering the level of challenge. Uh, yep. So I'd, I'd accept people's first answer instead of what could have been their best one because I didn't want them to feel uncomfortable. Uh, and I read a study like that and you kind of go, okay, so it's not just one or the other. You have to have both high challenge and high support. Uh, yeah. And I think framing it as such, so there are, there are other ways you can help develop resilience. Um, and I think schools do actually a really good job of that. Um, but I like that because it moves it away from just my individual interactions with a student. So yeah. I don't need to give them a pep talk. It's all about what's the culture and ethos of either my class or indeed the whole school. And are we nailing yeah. both high challenge and high support or are we lacking one of those? Uh, yeah. I think that, that that's a really fascinating area. Um, I'm pretty convinced the next area, if we're looking at going back to memory around cognitive load, is going to spend more time looking at the impact that emotions have on memory and cognitive load. I feel that's a very natural next step. Most of the content at the moment seems to be mainly revolved around how do we present information, Yeah, which I, I think mean, is really important. I think it's really valuable. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, and again, you seem to preempt and uh, have an understanding of the next question I was going to ask you, Brad. I'm very sure. aware that, you know, I've taken a significant amount of your time, but I was going to ask you, you know, in your opinion, from your your um, your active and sort of inquisitive research brain and psychological approaches, what's the next big thing? And you seem to, so emotions you think are going to be the, yeah, the I, next real focus for teachers. Uh, I, I think the link between like the role that emotion has in learning, I think will be a really big one. Uh, I am hopeful that we get more and more uh, aware of emerging evidence and some of the existing uh, long-standing evidence of the impact of both sleep. I'm convinced yep. there's a sleep crisis uh, and the impact that yep. has on student learning and well-being. Um, I'm a big fan uh, on, of the area of research around the impact mobile phones and technology has um, because I sometimes worry that Technology promises all manner of things and often falls quite short. Um, and that's from mobile phones to tablets. Um, I, I, I think that will be interesting as clearly technology is going to creep even more into education. Yeah. Um, and then the last area that I think might be a growing area, maybe not from a research perspective, but maybe just from a practical perspective, is I think we've got really good in the last five years of educating our teachers on the importance of cognitive science in their practice. Yeah. What does that look like? Uh, how do we get students knowing this, some of this stuff? And how do we upskill and educate parents as well? Um, yeah. Because if parents don't know how learning happens, it's quite hard to justify why we're doing certain homework strategies or what good revision looks like. Um, so I think kind of connecting that triangle between parents, teachers and students yeah. will, will be a really interesting area. 
I think um, you, you touch on something there about you know the, the development and uh, the increased use of technology and education, but then a significant, I think on the back of a lot of research being done, not only by yourself, but many others around the negative and damaging impact of mobile phone technology on, on students, particularly in learning environments. Yeah. So it's, again, like, it's, it, it's striking that balance, isn't it? Uh, yeah, like so I literally saw just before I came online, um, a post from Teacher Tap, uh, which kind of do these surveys. And they found, uh, I think the one they posted today was literally a, a third of students, a teacher report, a third, a third of them had students who took their phone out without permission in their classroom today. Yeah. Uh, and I think mobile phones are one of the biggest curses of modern education. Um, uh, we shouldn't call them phones. No one's making phone calls from them there. They have the potential to be great learning tools, but yeah. we also have to acknowledge the consequences of porn, gambling, social media, gaming, um, safeguarding issues. And I think there's a big difference between schools that use technology, for example, tablets, that they can control and limit what they use for, as opposed to just this device that students have, which they call a phone, but is actually just the world's best gaming thing. I mean, I look back at, see, this might show my age, so uh, I don't know if you could relate. I was addicted when I was at school to the game Snake on my Nokia 3210. Oh, of course. Uh, and that was the worst game in the world in terms of like aesthetics. If you offer someone every possible distraction in HD on their phone now, if I was that addicted to Snake, how, how are kids <laughs> possibly going to like compete with that now? So yeah, I think the mobile phone stuff uh, is problematic. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm possibly showing my age even more by saying that not only do I remember Snake, but I think I didn't even find out about it till I was at college. Okay, um, yeah, so there you so, go. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 40 next year, so uh, I think I might, you know, it, it's a scary world back then. And, and this is probably veering way off topic, but I imagine you're doing something fantastic and elaborate for to celebrate your 40th? <laughs> uh, I've not got that far down the line yet. Um, yeah. I'm sure it'll involve an interesting pair of shocks and shoes. Hey, that's um, what I'm here for, yeah. Well, that's, I, I noticed earlier, you've gone for a very strident blue. I'm impressed. Uh, um, I'm literally, it's one of the reasons why I stay on Twitter is just to get your sock and shoe updates, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> well, then I'll, I'll have to try and make a decent effort tomorrow. I need to upgrade the wardrobe a little, I think. Yeah, much, <laughs> much appreciated. Bradley, it's been an. I'm, it's, I've taken an hour of your time, and it's been absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm gonna. I mean, one thing interesting in in. I've only got a, little, a half an hour or so left. So after I've played the news, I'm going to be talking through uh, a paper that I think possibly you think I might have introduced you to, which is the top twenty principles from psychology for teaching and learning, which you, you've recently uh, yeah. made into an excellent um, a visual summary, haven't you? A lovely poster yeah. through in a drive. No, you absolutely did, which is why I kind of laughed at the start of this chat when you said your narrow and limited reading of the research <laughs> on stage, which is uh, definitely not the case because, uh, yeah, no, that was, a, that was a great move because, again, kind of like we mentioned this sort of gateway drug of it yes. just exposes you to a broad range and then prompts you to read more. So, yeah, I thought that was a really nice piece of research. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig down into a few of those principles just to consolidate our, our look at psychology. But I suppose my only, my final question is, have you read um, Hidden Lives of Learners yet? I've started. Uh, I know this, this is kind of like uh, a nonsense thing to say in the education world. When I revealed I hadn't read it uh, on Twitter a while ago, um, that it, like I'm definitely I'm about a third, maybe halfway through. Um, so yeah. I'm definitely getting there. So next time I come back on, you're allowed to quiz me all about it. Superb. Well, we'll make that the focus of the conversation because it's one of my favourites. 
And um, I, I think it just, again, reminds us of, of the importance of not only knowing how students learn, but what influences them and what they bring to the classroom that affects the way those cognitive gears work. And, uh, and I, I think that's, yeah. that's really important. Bradley, it's been an thank you so absolute much. pleasure. I, I thank you so much for giving up your time. Um, oh. And uh, yeah, a real pleasure. Uh, hopefully I'll, I'll see you very soon. And, and thank you again for everything that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you for the invite. Really appreciate it to have me on. Much Not at all. Not at all. Thank you. And that was the fantastic Bradley Bush. Um, and a real, real pleasure to absorb 60 minutes of his uh, valuable time there um, talking about the value of psychology and cognitive science in education. Um, we're going to go very late to the news. And then when we come back, we're going to be doing our weekly look at a seminal piece of research. Um, and this week I'll be looking, as I've just mentioned to Bradley there, at the top 20 principles from psychology for teaching and learning, um, which uh, will guide us towards the end of our twilight. So the news, here it comes. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us... You'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. 
visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In England, the exam regulator Ofqual is thought to be moving towards online GCSEs and A-levels as it begins to explore the use of online testing. The regulator has said that it will be working with exam boards to explore the role of adaptive testing, where digital exams automatically adjust to suit a candidate's ability level. Jeff Barton, General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders, welcomed the change saying we are delighted that Ofqual is going to look at new approaches to exams, including the use of technology, and that it intends to work with the awarding organisations to this end. Our current reliance on a pen and paper exam system, organised at an industrial scale, with Fort Knox-style security arrangements around the transportation and storing of papers, is hopelessly outdated and ripe for reform. If online assessment had been available, it might not have been necessary to cancel all summer exams for two years in a row. Chief Regulator Dr Jo Saxton said the plan expressed her personal commitment that the interests of students and apprentices will be the compass that guides us on every decision and action. In an interview with The Times, the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University has said that pupils attending private schools will be getting fewer offers of Oxford places in the future. He said, I would say we have to keep making it very, very clear we are intending to reduce over time the number of people who are coming from independent school backgrounds into places like Oxford or Cambridge. Individual students who are talented we would want them, but they are going to be competing against an ever larger pool because they are more students coming from state schools who are seeing a potential place for themselves at Cambridge or Oxford or other Russell Group universities. Barnaby Lennon, chairman of the Independent Schools Council said, said the issue was a complex one. He said taxpayers expect that Oxford and Cambridge would select students based on their academic potential. How they do that is up to them. A proportion of the best students in the UK go to independent schools, very often on large bursaries. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. And thank you to Gail Glenn for the news there. And apologies for the slight technical hitch at the start when I clicked the wrong button. As I say, I'm still learning my craft as a uh, a, uh, <laughs> a radio host, particularly one who is in charge of his own technology. Welcome back. Uh, real, real pleasure to be with you again this evening. Um, and if you're only just joining us or if you're, you've downloaded this and you're 
skipping through to try and find juicy little tidbits of pedagogical delight um, and you haven't listened to the first hour of the show, then you've missed an absolutely fantastic conversation with um, the wonderful Bradley Bush from Inner Drive. Um, <clears throat> somebody who I'm, I, I'm pleased to be able to, to know and, and to talk to. And, and we've shared a fascinating debate um, or I think less of a debate and more of a series of questions that perhaps we weren't sure of the answers to at one point. But that's, again, the beauty of dialogue, isn't it, around the importance of cognitive science and psychology and, and shared understanding of these basic tenets within um, teacher development. Uh, and in particular, we were focused, as my show always is, on initial teacher education and the beginning of teachers learning. And I think setting them up with the right habits from the start. And I think that's important, isn't it? It's about embedding the right habits early on in a teacher's career to ensure that hence, you know, they develop the appropriate mechanisms sort of internally, the appropriate automaticity um, within their own professional development um, to ensure that that continued exponential increase in quality that happens in the the early years um, does not plateau or stagnate as um, my interview with Mike Hobbis alluded to two or three weeks ago. Um, so I think really the role of initial teacher education um, and you'll notice that I call it initial teacher education an awful lot more these days and not initial teacher training it's far more than just training isn't it. Um, it is about educating and rounding and creating and crafting professional identities and about ensuring that student, uh, student teachers have the ability to remain individual and to drive home their own ethos and views and visions of teaching and learning, which may change over time. I know mine have. Um, but to stand true to what it is that they believe in the moment and not simply do what they're told for the sake of doing what they're told. Um, anyway. We've now reached this point in our show this evening where I do like in the second half to go through um, a key piece of research evidence um, and discuss its implications in the classroom. And I've chosen uh, this evening one uh, that I alluded to with Bradley earlier and indeed one that I introduced Bradley to, which I'm very, very pleased with. Um, and in a moment or two, we'll be discussing that. But I just want to take us back to um, Andrew Pollard, who I referenced heavily in the conversation with Brad earlier and his depiction of pedagogy as a triumvirate of science art and craft so it is the science or pedagogy is the science of teaching using research informed decision making pedagogy is an art of teaching the responsive creative and intuitive capacity of the teacher and pedagogy is the craft of teaching the mastery of a full repertoire of skills and practices and you'll remember a few shows ago if you're a keen avid listener and a, uh, a henry Sompson twilight show groupie um, uh, I'm sure they exist somewhere, uh, that I actually used a, a wonderful quotation from Brian Eno about craft and the fact that I'll re remind you of, of what Eno said. He said that craft is what enables you to be successful when you're not inspired. Um, art feeds my soul, craft feeds my family. And I think perhaps uh, aligning Eno with Pollard there, it's a, it's a bold move, but it's... Um, one that I think <laughs> is worthy of combination and were they ever to launch their own version of sort of high quality ambient pedagogy, then maybe uh, the world would look a very, very different place. <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm losing control of myself. Pedagogy um, and Pollard. Uh, so Pollard goes on to say that we need to acknowledge a paradox of teaching. 
that the more expert a teacher becomes, the more their expertise is manifested in sensitivity to contexts and situations, in imaginative judgments in the moment sourced from tacit knowledge. And I, I really do like the way that Pollard expresses how it's necessary to ensure that um, we, we continually scrutinize and evaluate our own practice and the practice of others using the relevant and pertinent evidence bases, theories, values and concepts that underpin what we do. So um, I'm now going to move into a, a, a brief look uh, because we, we only have 15 minutes remaining this evening. I, I monopolized Bradley for an hour. Uh, but we're going to look at a research paper and um, one which is freely available online, but one that I would highly recommend um, as what Bradley called a gateway drug. So a way in to understanding a little bit more about the way in which psychology can inform the decisions we take from a teaching and learning perspective. And I'm going to use the word inform. It is all about informing our decisions. It's nothing to do with uh, anything around how we uh, just do as we're told, as I've said, but it is about informing our practice and informing the way in which we choose to make decisions as teachers. So the paper is called The Top 20 Principles from Psychology for Pre-K-12 Teaching and Learning, um, published by the American Psychological Association uh, and uh, in conjunction with the Coalition for Psychology in Schools and Education. So this is that lovely bridge between psychological concepts and actual teaching and learning decisions. And because I'm old school, you may even hear the pages turning as I flick to my favourite areas um, and introduce you to this wonderful text. Again, just type in top 20 principles, teaching and learning uh, online, and you will find um, this paper freely downloads. And it's a fantastic synthesis of um, psychological ideas that then will combined with research methods that will inform the practice that teachers undergo in the classroom. They begin by telling us that psychological science has much to contribute to enhancing teaching and learning. And notice the words contribute and enhancing. The fact that teaching and learning are intricately linked to social and behavioural factors of human development, including cognition, motivation, social interaction, and communication. And that's what I was sort of asking Bradley to elaborate on. Bradley thinks that the next big thing in educational research will be around emotional concepts and constructs and the way in which we te teachers can understand more about the, the motivations, emotions and, and things that sit behind an individual in order to help them more effectively learn in the classroom. And the paper goes on to inform us that psychological science can also provide key insights on effective instruction, classroom environments that promote learning, and also research methods, that, research methods that inform practice. So they break the synthesis up into uh, a really, really useful set of summary principle headings, followed by basic explanations, um, a relevance for teachers, and then uh, excellent references and areas for further development. And that's, again, something back to what Bradley said, that one paper begets many other papers. One concept, one idea, one teaching and learning strategy or intervention is simply an umbrella term for a significant amount of underpinning research, development and investigation. And the principles themselves are arranged into groups. The first principles look at how students think and learn. And there's a lot of ideas within there. There's six, seven, eight of their principles 
the set uh, the next phase is what motivates students so we start with the sort of the cognitive and then we move into the more motivational the socio-emotional perhaps and then we dig deep through the principles into why social context interpersonal relationships and emotional well-being are so important to student learning and that's sometimes easy to forget as well as teachers we are actually controlling an environment in which people are existing they're not just passive you know learning buckets to be filled with our innate knowledge they are engaged in what we do and the more that we facilitate their interactions and influence the way that they can learn the more effective uh, we are likely to be as practitioners but we have to acknowledge as herbert simon told us that um we can't directly determine what students will learn we cannot tell them what to learn and they will not learn what we teach they will learn their interpretation of what we teach based on their own existing sets of uh, socio-emotional concepts, uh, conceptions, uh, environments, perceptions, memories and experiences. Uh, the principals also look at how the classroom can best be managed and then they conclude with looking at how we can assess student progress. So as a useful synthesis, I would highly recommend this paper. And in fact, I would even go as far as to suggest it could be the basis of a significant amount of highly effective reflective practice where teachers sit down together and they engage in dialogue uh, grounded in reflection and humility that encourages them to think about what they do and why they do it. So I'm just going to explore the principles um, a little bit more deeply, in particular, some of the ones that I think ring home, certainly for my practice and perhaps will for yours. Um, some of them are, as, as Bradley alluded to, what we would now refer to as in teaching as common sense, that you know what students already know affects their learning. Uh, so prior knowledge and the activation of it is exceptionally important. But other principles um, around uh, the need for practice as a necessary adjunct of acquiring long-term knowledge and skill, the desperate need for clear, explanatory and timely feedback as well as one of their core principles there and the fact that it needs to be as closely aligned to task as possible. Um, but they talk also about how we can foster students' creativity and how in particular the enjoyment of learning and therefore the better performance, and it does align the two, um, uh, is created when students are more intrinsically motivated. And that's often a, uh, an interesting place for discussion to start, isn't it? Intrinsic and extrinsic motivation of students. Um, there's some discussion around mastery as opposed to performance goals to ensure that students persist in the face of challenging tasks. But one thing and one area that I find really, really interesting um, is me as a practitioner and how actually my expectations about my students will affect them deeply, not only their opportunities to learn, but also their motivation to learn and indeed the outcomes of that learning. So the opinions and perceptions and ideas that I have of my students, be they preconceived, be they fair or unfair, um, are actually going to have a significant impact psychologically, sociologically on the students that I teach. And if I am not um, empathetic to, conscious of and aware of their various needs, um, the various, as Nuttall suggested, um, and there is Nuttall again, tick your card, um, in and around these ideas of the, the public, the semi-private and the private world of students, then I, I don't realise quite how much 
Uh, I influence what's going on in my classroom environment. There's that very famous quotation, isn't there, by Haim Ginot. Um, I'm not sure if the pronunciation is correct, and sorry, Haim, if that's not the case, but he's, he talks about how as a teacher I, I wield great power because it's ultimately me that is able to determine so many aspects of how a student feels um, at any particular point. So just to zoom in on this one principle, the principle that teachers' expectations about their students affect students' opportunities to learn their motivation and their learning outcomes. And this, perhaps, as Bradley alluded to, is going to be the next big thing in educational research. Maybe we just need to get more focused on the emotional side of things. And in particular, the way in which perhaps teacher expectations become self-fulfilling prophecies, um, our perception used through stereotype of, of how students will behave, our use of innate bias, labelling, um, and in particular, teacher talk as well and the way that we say things. Now, that can be down to how we ask a question, to how we give feedback. And so much of what we do effectively in a classroom environment is related to psychological concepts. Um, so in their principle, they say that actually as a teacher, we will often hold expectations about abilities of our students. And those beliefs will actually shape the instruction we deliver, the grouping practices we use, the outcomes we anticipate and the methods we use to evaluate those outcomes. So we align everything against perhaps a preconceived opinion of what these students are going to be like. It might be because we've labelled them. It might be because we've been told they're a certain ability set. But actually, our expectations on ability are based on students past academic performance. And potentially that might be an accurate representation. However, Sometimes our beliefs are inaccurate. We might expect less of a student. We might expect more of a student. Data may be flawed. Um, uh, the trouble is if our expectations are faulty and then we communicate them to a student in any way, verbal, nonverbal, um, they argue that student will begin to perform in ways that confirm these original expectations. And so they do urge us to consider that an inaccurate teacher expectation that creates his own reality is indeed this self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, it's likely, more likely to occur naturally in earlier, earlier years or at the beginning of a school year at times of transition, essentially when a context that sits behind the student is either least available or less reliable, and also at a point where students have grounds more to question their ability. So at a point of emotional consternation, um, at a point of significant perhaps adolescent growth, and if we combine the, you know, these become this perfect storm and these expectations that we have really do influence how we then go on to treat our students in the classroom. Uh, there's a fantastic blog by Kirsten Mould from uh, writing for the Education Endowment Foundation talking about three learning behaviours. And often we see behaviour as a pejorative, but actually she cites three pillars. There's emotional behaviours social behaviours and cognitive behaviours. And I think not until you have understood the emotional and social behaviours of students can you begin to um, use the cognitive behaviour to make informed pedagogical decisions. Um, so uh, a great example given uh, in the paper is that teachers appear to provide a more supportive emotional climate, clearer feedback, more attention, more instruction time and more learning opportunities for high expectancy students. So if we expect more of them, actually, um, we tend to give them more opportunity to do so uh, with sort of a, you know, no one rises to low expectations um, is one um, aspect of that. And the, the flip side being that a rising tide lifts all ships. 
Um, but actually what we're doing with that differential treatment is increasing the actual differences in achievement between high and low performing students over time. Uh, I do think that is a really, really, really vital aspect of what it is that we do. And as they explore the relevance for teachers, they continue to encourage us to assess the reliability of the information we're using to form our expectations. Um, but also, um, we should regularly self-check because we're sometimes unaware that we're doing this. We have an unconscious bias that leads us to make certain sort of instinctive decisions around simple things like participation in discussion, targets of questions, seating arrangements. And they summarise beautifully. They say probably the best antidote to negative expectancy effects is never to give up on a student. And I think really that's a nice point at which we can finish, isn't it? Now, it's been an absolute pleasure again this evening. Um, I'm going to close with a quotation to go with the hundreds of quotations that I've already thrown in. Um, and this time I'm, I'm looking at the work of Dewey uh, and I'm going to a, a section of his book, What is Thought, written the best part of 100 years ago. And Dewey says that thinking is not a case of spontaneous combustion. It does not occur just on general principles. There is something specific which occasions and evokes it. General appeals to a child or grown-up to think, irrespective of the existence in their own experience of some difficulty that troubles them and disturbs their equilibrium, are as futile as advice to lift themselves up by their bootstraps. And with a focus on hard thinking and a focus on encouraging students to strengthen schema and develop memory through thought, I think going back 100 years and reminding ourselves of what Dewey said is really important. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to welcoming you next week, uh, where we continue our delve and our deep dive into the world of initial teacher education and mentorship. And uh, thank you very, very much for your time. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.